5, verses 12 through 14. 1 Peter 5, 12 through 14. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Dearly Father, quiet our hearts, quiet our minds, help us to be focused on what your word has to say for us. As we conclude this book here, dearly Father, help us to be people that remember what we have been taught from your word. Help us not be like the fool that looks at himself in a mirror and quickly forgets what he saw. But help us to allow the word of God to Reflect in our own lives and so we can see you more clearly, see who we are, and our desperate need for you. Help us now. In your name we pray. Amen. Writing a letter. Uh, maybe the last time I could ask you, when was the last time you wrote a letter? And I'm not talking about a letter of the alphabet. I'm talking about when you actually sat down with a pen and paper and wrote a letter. It's become a lost art. Um, but... Because of the years I grew up in school, I had to learn how to write a letter. This was long before this thing called email, texting, or any of the other snazzy ways of talking to people. We wrote letters. And when we wrote this letter, we had to learn how to write the opening. You know, it was a business letter, it was a casual letter, the different body of the letter, the closing of the letter, and then the fun part of me in my second grade learning how to fold the paper to fit in the envelope and I was not the greatest with my little chubby hands trying to fold, and my would never fit in, and then I'd have a weird fold, and the teacher would say, that's not how you fold the letter, and I would struggle with all of those things. But there's a part of a letter that um, I was told should not be needed if you spent time thinking about what you were supposed to write, but there's a part of a letter that you call PS, which stands for postscript, that is at the bottom of the letter. And sometimes the postscripts, if you move over them, you miss what is actually going on. Uh, many times the postscript is the thing that you want them to remind, be reminded of. And I came across one letter. This is why the postscript is important. The letter read like this. Dear Jennifer, I love you so much. I would climb the highest mountain, swim the widest ocean, cross the burning desert just to be with you. See you on Saturday. P.S. As long as it's not raining. And... The postscript can sometimes shed light on the other part of the letter of how meaningful this is. And when we come to this postscript here, verses 12 through 14, we need to remind ourselves this is what the writer of the letter, the one who's writing, this is what they want ringing in your ears as the letter ends, as he closes. Another way of saying it's very similar to when a loved one is leaving, usually the last thing you say to the loved one is, I love you, because you want them ringing in their ears that you still, you love them, all right? And these things are important. And it's interesting here, I just did a little quick trying to figure out when did we start this letter, and I'm sure you all have this date marked in your Bibles. We started actually in December 6, 2021, working through Peter. Now we took some different detours along the way. But in a way, it's a sad ending. I was standing up here and I said, turn your Bibles to 1 Peter 12, 14, and it might be a while until you hear me say, turn your Bibles to 1 Peter again. And it's just interesting. It's almost like I'm losing a lost friend of mine that we've been in this book for this long. And it's interesting, as he closes this book, here's what he says. It's the title of the sermon, Stand Firm. So let's read 1 Peter 5, 12 through 14. By Salvanius, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring 
that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. There's a couple observations real quick that I just want to get out of the way as we walk through this. Peter is the writer of this letter. But if you're reading here, you notice if you were to look at verse 11, you can seems like he's concluding, and he concludes with the phrase, to him be dominion forever and ever, amen. You think the book would just, and he would write Peter, and away we would go. But he talks here a little bit about this Sylvanus. Now, this Sylvanus guy is another name for the word Silas, which is most likely the same Silas that Paul and Silas and Acts are, are running around with. Silas is a faithful friend of Peter. And most likely, uh, which is clear here, that Peter has been dictating this letter to Sylvanus. This is a very common thing at the time. You'd have a scribe. Uh, Some in church history, now again, this is not Bible, but this is church history, which have concluded that Peter at this time may have been blind. That's why he is having someone dictate, why he's reading it. I mean, he's, he's saying it, and someone's scribbling down what he's writing. Why he uses the term faithful brother uh, again, but this is just speculation. I'm just but I'm letting you know like what history tells us. Because why did Sylvanius have to be a faithful brother? So when Peter's writing down, he's actually going to write down what Peter's actually saying, that he's not you know, lying or anything else in this. Uh, also, too, it seems as if Sylvanius also delivered the letter um, as well. He's saying by him as well. That maybe he was the one that after he wrote this for Peter, because Peter was in Rome during this time, that Sylvanius had the strength because he might have been a younger man to go and give the letter to the churches spread abroad. Uh, but either way, we see that Sylvanius is the, the, letter, the letter carrier and most likely the letter scribe as well. And notice he says, I have written to you briefly. Um, again, five chapters according to Peter's writing briefly, so we can then boldly say we've only been in First Peter for a brief moment as well then if we're going to use the timing of these guys But when we think of what Peter has to say here at the end, the first point we're going to see here is he tells them to stand firm in the faith. Stand firm, and this standing firm in the faith, what he means by this, he's saying, declaring this, that the true grace of God, we are to stand firm in it. This true grace of God, to stand firm. So what does it mean to stand firm in the grace of God? Uh, There's an old hymn that I think describes this well. When we think of the idea of standing firm in the grace of God, there's an old hymn that says, On Christ a solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. And now I want to be clear on this. My confidence is not in my ability to stand, but on the rock in which I stand. All right? Your confidence is not in my ability to stand, but on the rock in which I stand. All right? Because many times we can think, well, look, look what I've done. But that's not what the text is saying. We're standing firm in the, the anchor of God. And notice what he says here. I've written to you briefly, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Notice these two words. First, let's look at that word exhort. This word exhort literally means to strongly encourage. This is, this is the idea of saying, in almost if you want to say it with a raised voice, of saying, I'm strongly encouraging you. I'm exhorting you. I want you to do this. I'm desiring for you to do this. And here's what he's saying. What gives him that strong exhorting? Peter has witnessed a struggle. Because notice what he says. 
exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Peter's witnessed a struggle, and he knows what God has said is right. Remember, Peter's writing to a group of people that are going to be incredibly persecuted. Many of them are going to die in the next two or three years here of the persecution under the Roman world, and he's reminding them, he's exhorting them to stand firm in the grace of God because he knows what that struggle is going to be. And he knows the only way for them to faithfully make it through, the persecution is going to come at, at, after them, is to stand firm in the unmerited favor of God. You did not earn this. Peter is going to understand this. He, when you look at the life of Peter, there is no way that Peter is saying, in any way, shape, or form, was I ever going to be good enough to earn this grace of God? And so when I understand that what I'm standing in is sheer grace, that rock on which I stand is even the grace of God, this is an unmerited favor, that the fact that I even stand for the truth, that it's all God and God alone. We stand firm in it. And here's why he's saying he exhorts us. The ground of that's exhorting is declaring. This word declaring means I'm a witness, I have seen it. Peter's saying, I've seen with my own eyes what is going on here. I have lived with Jesus. Literally, I've seen it, I've witnessed it. Remember 1 Peter 5, 1, where Peter says, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness to the sufferings of Christ. He's literally saying, I have seen the sufferings of Christ. I have witnessed it. I know it is true because I have literally lived it. I have watched it. I have seen his death on the cross. I have seen the empty tomb. I have seen how he's taken someone who has been weak in the faith. I have seen what it looks like when you're not self-controlled. I have seen what it looks like when I'm not sober-minded. I have seen the failures and the struggles all along the way. Peter remembers in his own life how many times he has led with his mouth many times. He has said things. Remember when Jesus says, I'm going to die. And Peter says, no, you're not going to die. And he literally looks at him and says, get behind me, Satan. You're not even thinking how you should, Peter. Peter is the one who, even when Jesus looked at him and said, you will deny me, Peter said, it's not even possible. No way is that possible I will deny you. And so you're coming from this after he realizes that he does deny Christ in time and space. What we see here is Peter saying, writing to this fellow believers, understanding the importance of standing firm in the grace. That's why the first command in the book, remember we looked at in 1 Peter 1.13, the first command that Peter says, after he talks about the great grace of the, of the gospel, the first command he says is, gird up your mind, be prepared, be watchful. Watch what's going on. Be alert. Don't be drunk with the things of this world. Don't be clouded with the pleasures and the entertainment this world has to offer because they are fleeting. They are here for a moment and gone. The vanity fair that this world has to offer, all the little, as we want to call it, the trinkets. When, when we say that, what I want you to get in your mind, whenever I, whenever I use the term the trinkets of this world, when we would go on vacation, you would go to these places where they would steal, their mo steal your money from you. They have these little lights that would blink. They were called arcades and stuff like that. And in these arcades, if you put in a quarter, you could roll a ball down a lane and it would go into different slots and they'd give you tickets. And you'd have to spend like $40 worth to get tickets to go buy something you could have bought at the dollar store, you know, for your $40 you spent because little lights go off and everything else. And you see these kids lined up over there looking to buy a bouncy ball that they're going to lose two minutes from now. Dad, can I go get 10 more dollars? so I can buy a bouncy ball that we could buy a pack of a hundred of 
for those $10, but that allurement that is so there, right? And all of a sudden you see up on the top, you know, the, the big, huge numbers. You need a thousand tickets to get this speaker. And you realize that's going to take me over $300 and I could probably buy this speaker for $10. And as parents there, you're trying to explain to your kids, I know it looks exciting there, right? Remember those little necklace beads that you to chew on and those things that you never really finish that thing anyway and they just get sugar all over your neck and you're going, why did I do this? Those are the things when I think about the worthless things that this world has to offer. We run to that and we can look at kids and go, oh, how silly they are. But we do the exact same thing as adults. We buy into so many things that this world has to offer and what Peter is saying is think clearly. Be sober-minded. Think clearly. Yes, it's easy to watch little kids struggle and not think clearly, but he's saying, as a believer in Christ, when your eyes are focused on Him and Him alone, it helps you to think clearly and see the world around you. Because remember when Peter, when he, when he um, denied Jesus, he literally gave in to things that he knew were not the case. He literally walked on water. He literally saw all the miracles. And all of a sudden, when his faith was being tested at that moment, it was just like he was not thinking clearly. He was not sober-minded. He was not watchful at all. And he fell into temptation. This is why he tells us to stand in the grace of God, because Peter knows he did not merit God's favor in any way. That is why grace is unmerited favor. Peter was a man who witnessed the grace of God. I want you to turn your Bibles real quick to John 21. John 21, verses 15 and 17. I want to set the the stage here for what's going on in this passage here. Remember... On the night Jesus was betrayed, he told Peter that he was going to deny him three times until the the cock crows. And so what we have there is Peter then denies him. And immediately once the cock crows, it is clear that Jesus and him locked eyes. And Peter knows that what Jesus said he was going to do and the remorse that happened there. One of the beautiful things to study in Scripture, too, is Judas, when he comes to his senses and realizes the sin that he has done, goes off and he is showing more remorse. Peter is showing repentance. Because Peter goes and weeps bitterly, Judas goes and hangs himself because he does not repent of his sin. And we see the difference between remorse and repentance. But what has happened here is by the grace of God, Peter is going to be restored on the beach here. Now, again, we don't have any writings from Peter that talks about what he was thinking from the moment after his denying of Jesus, other than weeping bitterly. We know that he met up with Jesus a couple of times with the disciples, but now they're going to have this confrontation here in front of each other. Because Jesus is on the beach while they're out fishing, and he made them breakfast, and they're going to have a conversation. And it's interesting, they finish breakfast and then Jesus turns to them. I, I can only imagine if I was sitting there going, that whole time you're eating, I wonder what type of appetite Peter's having, because he's like, I know we've got to deal with this, with this thing, because the last time we were together, but what we see, the gracious God. Verse 15, when they finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, do you know that I love you? He said to him, feed my, my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? And he said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to them, tend my sheep. 
He said to him a third time, Simon of John, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he had said it a third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. What we see here is a beautiful picture of Jesus saying to Peter, if you love me, it'll be seen by telling others about me, by feeding the flock. And what is first Peter? Peter feeding the flock. Peter, a man who was cowering in the, in the, if you want to call it, in the shadows of life, because of God's restoring work, because of Peter's repentant heart, lives a changed life. Peter, a man who, by a small servant girl who had no power any of, to do anything other than say, I think you were a follower of Jesus. And he could have said, yeah, what is it to you? What's a servant girl going to do? Nothing. She's a servant girl. She has no power. But just a servant girl unraveled him. Now, Peter, because of the way God restores him here, Peter's going to stand in front of the authorities of that time and be bold for the truth. So when Peter says we stand on the grace of God, Peter is saying there is nowhere else to stand but on the grace of God. We don't stand in our own strength. We stand on His strength and His strength alone. I want to take a moment here and talk about the difference between repent, being repentant and repentance versus remorse. Remorse is the idea that you've been caught, that someone has exposed a sin or something like that, and you just go, well, that stinks, and you just move on. Repentance is saying that you've sinned against a holy God, and you're willing to do whatever the change is necessary. That is hard. Repentance is painful yet sweet at the same time. Because repentance, you deal with the situation. Remorse is you hope it goes away and just ignore it. When Peter's restored here on the beach, the Lord goes right at him with three statements that is not missed by Peter. Peter denied the Lord three times. It's interesting, the Lord does not say to Peter, go off and do some type of spiritual act, go off and, you know, do you really mean it, and all these other things. Peter goes, you know my heart. And the Lord says, then do what I've commanded you to do. Live in obedience. There have been so many times when Peter has penned words that you know you would call them that cost him. Words that he would say, you know my life, you know me like it's literally written in the Gospels all about me. My failures, my struggles, but all this. But what caused him to stand firm? It was not looking at his past, it's who he was in Christ. And so the part that I would say to you guys as a, as a flock, your past does not define you. Who you are in Christ does. Yet it's so easy to live in the past and to act as if we've been defeated or we cannot have victory that he's called us to have. But the way to victory is repent and sin no more. And cast your heart and your anxieties on him because he cares for you. It's interesting here, Peter, and after saying, stand firm in the faith. Stand firm in the grace of God. He then 
has some family references here, which is kind of interesting. And so the last part here, I want to work through, what does this family of God look like? So in verse 13, it says, She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. Now, I would say the majority of people who study this passage and the commentators on this all fall to one side. And there was one that said this is referring to Peter's wife, but I don't, I don't follow that at all in the, in the argument of the text. Um, I would argue that, first of all, when you say Babylon, so is he talking about like the Persian Gulf area over here? No, by the time that uh, Peter is writing this, Rome has been treated as the new Babylon. Remember, the Babylon of old in the Old Testament was a land of evil and debauchery and all these other things, a land of captivity. Rome now has been the, the captors of the, of the Palestine and that whole area over there. And so very quickly, the New Testament writers refer to Rome as Babylon, the new Babylon that is going to come. And so it is pretty clear that he is speaking here of the church that it is in Rome who is also chosen, chosen by the grace of God, not because of any merit they have, sends you greetings. So this would, I would say, is him at the end saying the family of God that is in Rome is sending you greetings in the way that they would have known as well. And then we have this phrase here too, um, Mark, my son. Uh, I do not believe this was his biological son, Mark. Um, John, Mark, and Peter had a very tight relationship. You can go back through and study the book of Acts and see how they interacted with one another. But notice he calls him my son, my spiritual son. And before I dive into that anymore, go back to Silas or Sylvanius here, and what does he call him? My faithful brother. All right, so we have a lot of family talking about here, and these people are most likely not biological family. And so when we have to think through this here for a moment, to put our lenses on and start going through this. So I want to spend some time first talking about Sylvanius, the faithful brother. Now, I want to be clear on this. Yes, we desire, and we talked a little bit about this in Sunday school, our desire is for the leaders of the church to be faithful. Because as the leadership goes, so goes the church. All right, and that's across the board. You have corrupt leadership, you have a corrupt society. If the leaders are not faithful, if the leaders are not pursuing after Christ, we cannot expect the flock. That is why Satan knows this. You attack the leadership, you scatter the flock. And so now all of a sudden he says, my faithful brother Sylvanus. And when we think about this faithful brother Sylvanus, this idea here is that we need not just faithful leaders, we need faithful church members, faithful followers of God. Because if the church is not faithfully following God, we have no hope. So when you sit there and go, well, I'm not in leadership, it doesn't really matter what I do, I would say, yes, it matters a whole lot. Because imagine Peter, if he, if he is blind at this time, writing this, what does he need? Have a trusted follower of God to communicate the truth that God has given Peter to the world around him. He needs to be faithful. Your walk with God is no less significant than anyone else's walk with God. We need faithful men and women in the church that can be trusted to lead the church, that can be given responsibilities in the church to follow what God has called them to do. There is no insignificant church member. We all play different roles. Your faithfulness is just as important as anyone else. Also, too, when we think of this spiritual son and the faith, this is challenging. Because I'll just go right, flip it right around on all of us. 
So who are your spiritual children in the faith that you're discipling and encouraging? You may say, well, I don't have one. Okay. Have you been praying to ask God to bring one along for you to encourage? These are things that we say, are we not only drinking in the word of God, are we pouring it out into other people's lives as well? And I can guarantee you, if you go, well, I don't know what to do, here's something I would ask. Pray that God would give you an opportunity to encourage someone. Usually, if you go up to someone and try to encourage them, unless you are really bad at encouraging and your encouraging is more discouraging, uh, there are people that need encouraging all around you. And as you do that, that encouragement back and forth through that, all of a sudden we start to encourage one another in the faith. And as we encourage one another in the faith, we start saying, listen, I know your life right now may be terrible. I understand that, but God is faithful to do what he has promised. Because notice what he goes on to say. Greet one another with the kiss of holy love. Now, before we go down that rabbit trail too far, and just start going, what's that going to look like, all right? Um, in the culture at that time, the idea of kissing each other on the cheek or things like that were not uncommon, all right? I am not in any way, don't expect when you leave, I will still shake your hand. Um, we're not, um, because we, in our culture, what he's saying here is what I would argue that he's saying in other places. So before you say, Tim, no, if you said we're going to do the literal interpretation of Scripture, and so I expect my holy kiss when you leave, uh, turn to 1 Peter 1.22. This idea of greeting each other with affection is found all throughout the book. 1 Peter 1.22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Another passage we see that is 1 Peter 4.8. Above all, love one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. What we see here in the text is we are to greet one another with affection. Because true Christianity is the creation of a new family that loves one another deeply. When you are part of a body of believers, this is a new family that's being put together that should love one another deeply. Because what Peter is reminding them, this whole book is talking about, that suffering and struggles are going to come upon the church. And when these suffering and struggles come upon the church, you will need one another even more desperately than you need them now because you need that encouragement that is there that is found in the body of believers. When a church body is functioning healthy, when you come together, you go away stronger, not weaker. And so the question that we have in front of us is, how is this to live out? And so, when I think through this, this is how I when, I, when I want to put the example together of what I am praying that this church is, and what I'm encouraging us to become, if we're not there yet, and if we are there yet, we're not there because of our pride or anything else. And so, here's what I see. My prayer is that, in my little example, this is what I see. A weary, worn, torn believer who has been beaten by the world, whose eyes are on Christ but struggling, dragging themselves into church and into this gathering, and instead of being mocked and maligned for why was this week so rough, what is wrong with you, 
Instead of being beaten, mocked, and maligned for struggling under the suffering, they are embraced by a loving church and encouraged in the word and strengthened through fellowship. They're not mocked but restored. Now, I will, before we go through this, is I'm not saying that we ignore sin. But what I'm saying is the only way of dealing with sin to actually bring about life is to deal with the sin and restore. And so our struggle is going to be this. Is this body a spot? Are we seeing ourselves not only as a battleship that is out attacking with truth, error, are we a place that also people come through the Word of God to be restored, to be strengthened in the faith? Because as we are restored and strengthened in the faith through the Word of God, this is what binds us together in affection towards one another. But remember what we've talked about, what Peter is saying all the time is, he's saying this is not something we run from, this is something we run to. Because the believers in Christ are to be a family that is known as a loving body of believers, and that love then spores, pours out into the other areas of what we do. They will know that we are Christians, as the Bible says. They will know that we are followers of God by how we love one another. And that love can only come from a love of God that then is poured out into loving others, because as we love others, we see them as they truly are the body of Christ. And so the challenge in front of us is this. Remember as Peter walked through this, Remember, he's talking about these pilgrims that are on a journey way, and as they're journeying through the world, they get mocked because they're not doing the same things they used to do. They're getting maligned because they don't do the same things they do over here. Then they come together as a body of believers, and there should be no mocking, there should be no maligning, there should be no, listen, I can't believe that you sinned this week. You'd be like, well, I, I can actually believe that. You know, but what we do during that time is we use the Word of God as it is to be used to restore and to encourage us to continue living faithfully. And this affection that we have for each other is more than just, I really like you. This is a biblical affection that says, I'm going to walk alongside with you. I'm going to journey with you through life because God has given us to do this together. And yeah, there's going to be ups and downs along the way. Yeah, you're going to hurt me. Yeah, you're going to, I mean, we just fill in the blank. But we do this because we are a part of the body of Christ. And so when we see one another, we, we're excited to see one another because we see what God is doing in our lives. And notice what this brings. The last stage verse there is peace to all of you who are in Christ. Remember, he's writing to a group of people that are going to be drugged out of their homes. There's not going to seem like there's any peace. But where is the peace? The peace is found in Christ. You may not have peace in this world, but there is a day coming that you will have peace where all wrongs will be made right. And so as he closes this book, been in this book for a long time, and this book has really worked on me hard, and it is like saying goodbye to a friend, I'll be honest with you. I hope you learned something during this time. So I sat here at home, and I'm going, how do you summarize this book, all right, that has been so near and dear to my heart as we study it? How do you put it together? And I'm not going to read the whole thing to you, so I tried to put together, it's a couple of uh, lines here. 
Give me a second here. So here we go. The life of a believer. The life of a believer in a community is one of a pilgrim walk. Walking the road of suffering designed by God to refine you. The life of a believer in community is one of a pilgrim walking the road of suffering designed by God to refine you. The Spirit's empowered journey of the believer is marked by a watchful, sober-minded, self-controlled living. The Spirit-empowered journey of a believer is marked by a watchful, sober-minded, self-controlled living. Because the devil is roaming about seeking to devour. This journey home is one walked on the firm ground of the grace of God. I'll say that one more time. The life of a believer in community is one of a pilgrim walking the road of suffering designed by God to refine you. The spirit-empowered journey of a believer is marked by a watchful, sober-minded, self-controlled living because the devil is roaming about seeking to destroy. This journey home is one walked on the firm ground of the grace of God. We're going to stand here and sing a song, Almost Home. And as we conclude 1 Peter here, I want us to be encouraged by what Peter had to say for us. As he faithfully lived his life, and history tells us that he was crucified, according to church history, upside down, not because of anything other than he did not seem it according to history, as the right to be crucified like his Savior. So he would go upside down. We stand in awe of what God can do in one man's life. But Peter would say, don't look at me. Look to him. Because it's the same grace that took a fisherman and made him be able to stand before the powers of his day Fully proclaim the truth is that same grace that can give you the boldness to stand up for what is right. So let's pray and we will conclude our time in Peter. Dearly Father, there's so many things that we have learned here, so many things that we didn't even have time to talk about. So, dearly Father, may your Holy Spirit take these truths that we have discussed and press them into our hearts and minds and mold and shape us to be conformed to your Son. Help us. Keep our eyes free from the things that would so easily distract us and may we look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Seeing the past of men like Peter, men like Paul, men like Mark and Sylvanius who have gone on before us, faithfully living out the race that was set before us. So, dearly Father, as we are almost home and as we can almost see, as Pilgrim stood on the banks of the Jordan in Pilgrim's Progress and he could take a breath of that air of heaven, 
Help us to understand that we are not there yet. So help us to be faithful, following you. In your son's name we pray. Amen. You could stand with us as we sing.